ReachMD now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Yes, you are, and I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and today we're ushering in our 50th show, the best ever with a great new approach for delivering healthcare in developing parts of the world, with our guest, Dr. Glenn Gielhold. Dr. Gielhold has gone on more than 200 humanitarian medical journeys throughout Africa, Asia, the South Pacific, and South America. His new book, Gifts from the Poor, What the World's Patients Taught One Doctor About Healing, follows his four decades of experience on medical missions to the poorest parts of the globe. And later in the program, we'll look at some controversial new research published in JAMA that says low levels of salt consumption lead to higher rates of cardiovascular disease and death. You heard me right. Hey, that is total nonsense. No way that's true, man. <laughs> well, let's break out the giant salt lick and find out. In the meantime, we'll take a closer look at that study and see if it's really worth its weight. Wait for it. In salt. Oh, I knew you'd go there, man. <laughs> Just pass me that bag of chips and we'll be square. All right. Stick around, everyone. This edition of Second Opinion Live is about to get very interesting. Well, better than getting very interestingly salty. But first, Ugh. let's look at other recent medical highlights in the news. Here's one that comes from the Department of Medical Oddities. And no, that doesn't really exist, but it's just plain odd. A 56-year-old American woman residing in Oregon her whole life goes to the oral surgeon for a common dental procedure under anesthesia. Everything under the knife goes hunky-dory. No issues there. But guess what happens when the anesthesia wears off? The patient wakes up and finds out that she now has a British accent. That is no joke. I just got to pick from knee surgery. Oh, <laughs> although to be fair, we should emphasize the ish in this British accent. Footage of her new dialect sounds sort of British. It also sounds kind of Irish and even a little bit South African. So it's really hard to pin down. Yeah, sort of like that French accent At least accent I you just woke did. up speaking English. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm not even sure if I should call yours French. <laughs> well, they all agree it's definitely not what she walked in with. And some doctors are commenting on the case. They think that she's demonstrating a rare but documented neurological disorder called foreign accent syndrome. Fewer than 100 cases ever reported, and patients most often acquire it after a stroke, i.e. ischemic damage. Now, in one case, it was also triggered by a migraine, while another patient woke up from a coma with a brand spanking new accent, him or herself. So then it's less about the accent itself and more about the neurological damage to the part of the brain that controls speech. Mm -hmm. And that damage is causing patients like this one to pronounce words in a way that sounds like an accent. Yeah, kind of like your French accent. Yes, but of course. Correctamundo. And that probably explains why these accents don't typically match any one dialect exclusively. I mean, your talent notwithstanding. Neurologists say the condition may reverse itself Although in this case, the patient actually doesn't seem to mind. She and her family think, if anything, it's entertaining, which I can tell you is a far better response than the severe disorientation and, in many cases, clinical depression that this condition has caused a lot of people. I mean, just imagine that. Did it get them an invitation to the royal wedding? Well, it's not my cup of tea, Matt. All right. Now on to something else from our highly esteemed Department of Medical Oddities. This is a great one. Firewalking. Firewalking. Firewalking is rather hot, mm. kind of like me, which makes it rather dangerous, kind of like you. Oh. And to most of us, rather stupid, which makes it like me again. <laughs> but believe it or not, it's also a shared cooperative activity in some parts of the world, which the National Academy of Science suggests could make it a survival behavior. Let me get this right. So walking on hot coals is now a survival behavior. If I have burning feet, 
I'll live a more productive, longer life. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, yeah, kind of. Now, to come clean on this, the research is less about the activity itself and more about the physiological benefits of emotional bonding through shared rituals. They just happen to follow firewalkers in this case. Of course, of course. I mean, what other shared activities are out there anyway? Birthdays? That's boring. Uh, (laughs) Firewalking. Now, that... That's normal. Hey, don't knock it till you tried it. Anyway, the <laughs> investigators wanted to see if the social bonding uh, through an extreme activity like this one comes from the physical side of participating or from the emotional side of sharing it. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Well, uh, some this, hard science here. I mean, you can tell I'm loving where this is going already. <laughs> I'm sure. It's going to Spain. So they went to a rural village in Spain where for every year, for the summer solstice, some villagers walk across a carpet of burning hot coals. They put heart monitors on 12 firewalkers. Nine friends and family members in attendance, and 17 other audience members with no connection to the walkers. Well, I guess you won me back at Spain, but what I'm hearing here is that this really isn't about firewalking at all, is it? I mean, why, why am I suddenly feeling betrayed on this one? Get over it, Matt. This is what they found. <laughs> friends and relatives' heart rates spiked and dropped in synchrony with the firewalkers. But the other spectators had no physiological connection at all to the walkers. So they say this indicates there's a physical synchronization going on with shared human events meaning we might be able to quantify social events on human physiology sometime down the road. But to me, if it was my wife walking on the coals, my heart rate would be up too. If it was you walking on the coals, I wouldn't care. Well, my heart rate would be shame. down. Well, we're basically doing the equivalent of walking on hot coals right now. That's and right. My heart rate is steady as they come. Well, why don't we turn to a story we're both synchronized on because it's unanimously gross, and that is bed bugs. Ugh. It turns out <laughs> this modern scourge of hotel bedrooms nationwide may be a vector in more ways than just giving us the heebie-jeebies. Researchers in Vancouver now say bed bugs also carry drug-resistant bacteria. And this is why I'm never traveling again without my own bed. <laughs> of course not. Here's the scoop. There's been a huge resurgence of bed bugs in the last 10 years, mainly because of their increased resistance to pesticides like DDT and our increased worldwide travel. Recently, some scientists in Vancouver decided to take a closer look after hospitalizing three patients who were infested with bed bugs. Guess what they found besides bed bug bites? I like where this is going. The, uh, the isolated bugs tested positive for MRSA and vancomycin-resistant enterococcus. Ugh, that is just... Ugh. MRSA it's bugs. Just, ugh. Although I kind of like the image of testing a bed bug for infectious disease, I have to say. I wonder what kind of counseling these bugs would receive when they heard the bad news, is my thought. Well, no counseling, man. They were smeared and streaked across a Petri dish first. <laughs> they were dead. Well, it serves them right anyway. The only good bed bugs are dead bed bugs. <laughs> All right. The good news is that while bed bugs were shown to be carriers, they weren't shown to actually spread these diseases. Well, yeah, but what kind of report would this be if we didn't balance it with some bad news? Now, the CDC as that the potential is there for passive transmission, especially in the case of MRSA, which can invade through openings in the skin. That said, we've all basically got MRSA on our skin all the time. You would know that better than anybody. And a paper cut, from what I understand, is probably deeper than most bed bug bites. Oh, that's very cold comfort, Matt. I'm still not traveling again without my own bed, or at least not without <laughs> thought, proof of daily bed bug quarantines at my hotel. I thought you always traveled with a bed. Yeah, no, and actually, this is the North American bed bug. The South American bed bug is different and does spread some diseases. Well, all I know is I think I'm just going to stay got, in my room for a while. Got to know your bed bugs, man. Well, that's actually a good segue for our guests this week. Not the bed bugs, but maybe uh, getting out there and traveling. Our guest has clearly gotten over that petty concern during his 200 medical humanitarian trips. Dr. Glenn Gielhold is a professor of surgery, international medical education, microbiology, immunology, and tropical medicine at George Washington University Medical Center. His new book titled Gifts from the Poor, What the World's Patients Taught One Doctor About Healing, chronicles over four decades of experience taking medical missions to the poorest parts of the world. Dr. Gielhold, 
Welcome to Second Opinion Live. Well, thank you, and I think I'm not a fire-walking bedbug with a foreign accent that I attained during anesthesia, but I think <laughs> I am a medical oddity, and I probably score on that comparison. Well, then you fit right into the show here. <laughs> Welcome to our show, because we're odd, too. <laughs> your, your book is called Gifts from the Poor. What are some of those gifts? Oh, that's a turnaround on what you'd probably expect to say, that we're out there doing good for people. I don't think that's the major lesson I learn each time I go out. I look at people who have far fewer resources, far bigger problems, and cope and don't simply survive. They thrive, and what they often have as a response to our presence is generosity, hardly something you expect from people that are far better endowed with all kinds of technology and resources. So the book is, in fact, what we have learned by staying our our own uh, culture aside and seeing how it is that they can teach us. I love those folks because they have a lesson we need to learn how to do with bigger problems, fewer resources, and still come out not necessarily... Uh, singing and happy, but having come through and having still a concern for others. Dr. Gielhold, we're going to spend the majority of our time talking about those missions, these trips of yours, these experiences, but we got to put it out there plainly first. I mean, you have to be among the most interesting doctors on earth. I mean, you have the more... medical oddity department is why <laughs> I think they referred me to you. Absolutely. I, mean, I, I look at your, your background. You have more degrees than you can fit on a card. You've, just, <laughs> you've been just about everywhere on the planet for medical missions. Your expertise even covers a huge range of interests. So my question to you is, how did you find yourself in this position as, as a jack-of-all-trades? Well, I guess someone who takes very little satisfaction in the last achievement, looking for the hardest and the best and the biggest one that you can try to get busted by the next time around. Actually, what I do is I run into a wall and then say, there are some people who know how to manage this, not I, so what is it that they know? So I'll run off and do some anthropology for a while and understand a bit more, and then I find myself stuck in another uh, uh, cul-de-sac until I learn, after all, there are probably more anthropologic reasons for ill health than there are medical ones. And there are many more things, as you well know, about our behaviors that influence our well-being than would be the latest of the antibiotics or the best of the surgical procedures. So my goal is to try to promote health and prevent disease, and a whole lot of that is transmedical. Medical is a good start, but after that, we have to say, never have so many people had the benefit of so much high technology and had so little satisfaction in it. So let's go find out those folks who are coping and learn what we can from them because they seem to be happier about their results and what it is that they can do in coping. I think uh, when you said I have more degrees than a thermometer, uh, I find that the people most interesting are those who have never been inside a classroom and can teach me a lot. And what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned? One of those is that you and I, perhaps coming from a resource-rich, perhaps redundant environment, we may not always feel that way, but we have a lot of technology around us and a lot of fail-safes in which we try to tame the culture and the environment around us. They are pretty much at the mercy of it and have to adapt. It's one of those situations where you uh, want what you get, not get what you want. And therefore, they assume this with some degree of fate and then say, we have to cultivate what we're best at. And that isn't necessarily uh, resource-based in the sense that we just described, and that is capital and uh, 
control of the environment. It is, in fact, our relationships with each other. I think of this in anthropologic terms, that if you and I were agronomists, we gather up food, or if we were manufacturers, we bring stuff together. My space is already overflowing with stuff. There, they have no such, and as a hunter-gatherer, they store up favors. You remember that when the times were tough, the I shared from my overabundance, and now it is a little tough for me. Don't you think we can use our relationship for both of our benefits? And as a consequence, I learn a lot from those folk who are able to capitalize on relationships when, in fact, their material resources are somewhat scarce. Sounds to me like you're talking my language. First of all, you're talking basic spirituality and community and learning you to get along it. on the planet. It's very much what Patch Adams actually talks about. And in fact, you got it, and I'm uh, glad that you did, because sometimes I have to pull that from people. But it's a spiritual richness. Now, I don't say that in poverty ennobles people. No, not necessarily. In fact, each one of us probably would say a whole lot that's uh, quite uh, uh, contrary to that if we were deprived. But generosity isn't the first response on deprivation from most peoples. And what these folks have started from, and are very grateful for literally any increment they have, not necessarily as manna from heaven, but as something, as a gift from someone else. And I say that spirituality, that being stripped of other outside technology crutches gets us to confront reality fairly frontal head-on. I don't know how many Americans not in the medical profession have a regular, almost daily acquaintance with death, perhaps those in the military or those who are dealing with, uh, uh, for example, uh, the rescue services or something like that. There, in that environment, everyone does, and every day is not a day that you take for uh, uh, granted, and it's a contingency event, so you're grateful for every little thing, the next breath that one takes, and as a consequence, that spirituality is a very deep and powerful resource that I think we have to ourselves get stripped from that overlay. And I think you just uh, referred to that when you're talking about, uh, let's say, let's start whinging about bedbugs or something like that, or the fact that I can't get a hot shower or a cold beer. Well, as a matter of fact, those people have never known anything but that kind of environment. And as a consequence, they virtually accentuate the positive because if they were to deliberate very much on the negatives, life would be pretty miserable. And they don't live in misery. We can consider their circumstances abject deprivation and misery. But in fact, what are those powerful resources that they carry that we can learn? So from the flip side, do you think that as far as our listenership is concerned, coming from or residing in and training into a, a resource-heavy environment, do you think that comes to the detriment of overall training as a physician? I think there is a way that one can get so focused on this superficiality. You have to know uh, one of the techniques, as you well know from your fairly frequent broadcasts on this and podcasts that have talked about technology. If the only thing in your hand is a hammer, of course everything is a nail. There are a whole lot of things out there in the world that don't necessarily fall into the purview of the particular uh, skill that I happen to have. And as a consequence, let me find those people who know lessons in living, not necessarily just in the treatment of or even to the extent of the prevention of certain diseases, but how to live successfully. And health is a very positive attitude for them thereafter and not just curing. I've got a problem 
that I was not born with. And so I used to say to the residents who would come on in, uh, what's this patient's problem? He said, well, he needs a pyloroplasty and vagotomy. I said, he surely wasn't born with was he? This is a purview of your own, and you're looking at it something, this is an operation I want to do. As a consequence, let's say we have a magic wand, recognizing that there are a few such wands in existence, but assume that we could get rid of that problem. What other kinds of resources would this patient have remaining behind? And that's what I'm asking for these poor people in the other parts of the world that have taught me so much, and that is strip away some of this stuff. And after that, we're not talking about equating, as you often point out, a patient with a disease. It's not the gallbladder in bed six. But I don't also want to be identified as a rich or a poor uh, person. And tell me what things that you can tell me that are truly characteristic of them. How do you cope? What is your success in living? And how is it that you've been able to do that with a whole different culture and a whole lot of systems absent that I have experienced all from birth on? And the first world can learn a lot from that third world. One of those lessons that they have had a postgraduate course in that we've never even started how to deal with bigger problems in larger numbers with fewer resources. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, along Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Our guest today is Dr. Glenn Gielhold, author of the book Gifts from the Poor, What the World's Patients Taught One Doctor About Healing. Glenn, you're speaking a marvelous language. You're speaking something that I think most American doctors need to listen to because, in my opinion, we've lost our sense of spirituality in medicine and sense of community. We're all about the disease and all about the bottom line. You're absolutely right there, and I don't want to uh, give a blanket condemnation to our American uh, predilections for high-tech and very little uh, uh, loving touch and uh, kind of identification with the patient and their problems. Some of these patients have problems with which we can't possibly identify. We've never even had the experience of going hungry for 60 days. We haven't ever possibly had, like the Lost Boys of Sudan, trekked along at night because they're strafed by day, and at night they're predated by the animals around them. And then we say something that only politicians and physicians are ever so arrogant to say, I know what's best for you. My goodness, you don't even know me. How can you know what's best for me? And what is best for me is that my uh, lipids are reduced or that my gallbladder is removed or that I have a carotid endarterectomy. Nonsense. That may not be what's best for me. That may be one of the ancillary things that gets me to where I want to be. But after that, what will I have? So let's accentuate the positive, not look for those single problems that we always find because we can fix them and leave behind all those problems we've never even acknowledged, let alone addressed. Well, we've got a few minutes left before we have to uh, depart with you, but I, I wanted to bring up, you mentioned the Sudan, and I wanted to bring up for our listeners the extraordinary peacemaking circumstances in which you set up a clinic out there recently. Can you tell us a little about that experience? Well, in fact, I was there on a regular basis for some time and have tried to teach people there how to manage some of their usual problems. And I found over time that we were pretty successful in setting up a clinic and doing the curative kind of practices. And then I tried to extend them out into some sort of health promotion. And that included vaccination and other programs. But then I looked around and said to myself on my first day, on perhaps my uh, third or fourth visit a few years ago, on my first day there, I had 12 casualties, nine of them dead from uh, intertribal hostilities 
because there they have a very big medical problem, and the medical problem is a social problem becoming a political problem, which, of course, is for them a paramilitary problem, and that is infertility. They have to get young females who are capable of bearing children in order that their tribe doesn't go extinct. With polygamy and other things going in that direction, they are a cattle culture, and I can say this with uh, some sadness, that they equate young women and cattle because it takes 50 cattle to get a bride. And so they're constantly rustling cattle and abducting and stealing young children, especially the females from another tribe. What they then have done is uh, have a warfare that's as prehistoric as the cattle cultures that came on down the Nile to the Sudan in the first instance. So I said to them after sitting them down and looking at them, I said, look, what is the purpose of my teaching you how to manage malaria and tuberculosis when your biggest health risk is hostility? Who can get above this? I recognize that there's a severe problem that you've got, and that is you may actually be extinct within a generation with a fertility rate of the the women in that tribe uh, hovering around 26%. That is to say, infertility has for at least a half a dozen factors that your audience would well understand. That includes hypothyroidism. It includes untreated PID with a tubal occlusion. It includes brucellosis, which is an irony, because after all, the brucellosis, which is a placental infection of their cattle, and they have to hoard cattle in order to get brides, which turns out to cause their infertility. There are a number of other reasons that include this. I said, let us address that, and let's get one tribe to go to the other. No way. I think they all have to go extinct, said one of the people there. No, 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 no. They, yeah, they're going to be extinct, all right. We ought to do everything we can to help them in that direction. I said, who can get above that? And two of the Dinka lost boys, returnees, probably only from being out of that environment and coming back to it, did they have this perspective, and said, we will go with you. Now, for me, it's no risk at all for me to intrude myself into another uh, tribal culture there. After all, I'm an extraterrestrial that just happened to fall off this piece of the planet. But for them, they're crossing enemy lines. And they were pretty brave to do that. And then, having done this once in Rwanda, I tried to take this gamble on my own and said, having done it in Rwanda, I brought Hutu to the Tutsi areas and said, here are your health care providers, and I'll do anything I can to help them, help you. But I'm not going to be the primary caregiver here. They're going to do it. And after holding their nose at first and after swallowing hard, they said, you know, we don't like these people, but you can't not like the fellow who fixes you. Uh, and they got over that. So I tried it here, and I took the, the Dinka to the Merle, and I said, these are your folk that will be your caregivers, but we will redevelop your health care through you. I'm not going to do it. You are, but I'll help you. Only if there's no blood on your hands, and if you will at this moment raise your right hand and swear not to kill your brothers. They did so. And I thought, well, that's, uh, you know, been done before, and that'll probably last. And I was startled to find out that the mortality rate upon my departure there was zero in the area where those two tribal chieftains had stood with all their sub-prefecture chiefs and their paramount chiefs and had their right hands raised in the air. Glenn, I hate to have to stop you, but on a live show, we get to run out of time. I could listen to you for hours, and we need, <laughs> we need, to, have, we need to have you back. We'll do a redo. And we'll feel, have it at it. I feel but horrible stopping sometimes. you. So thank you. Just keep on living with your heart in one hand and your stethoscope in the other. Hey, we'll have one of the 
heart ahead of the stethoscope. I'm not so sure what I hear all the time, but I know where the heart leads. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Our guest today has been Dr. Glenn Gielhold. He's a professor at George Washington University Medical Center and author of the book Gifts from the Poor, What the World's Patients Taught One Doctor About Healing. Glenn, thanks for joining us today on Second Opinion Live, and please, we need you back. And thank you to both of you, and I appreciate the Second Opinion Live. Thank you. Our pleasure. Well, before we wrap up today, let's turn to a hot new item in the ReachMD Forum about a European study from earlier this month in the Journal of the American Medical Association. What makes it so controversial, you might ask, other than being European? Well, the study seemed to claim that lower levels of dietary salt were associated with higher rates of cardiovascular disease and death. That means, from their perspective, pushing toward a systematic nationwide or global reduction in salt intake may not be the best idea. Ask me that salt shaker. (laughs) Not surprisingly, the CDC is more than a little skeptical. In fact, their recent public health session presented on ReachMD's Grand Rounds Nation was devoted entirely to salt reduction. Meanwhile, the American Heart Association says it has no plans to change its guidelines that Americans consume under 1,500 milligrams of sodium per day. Well... I can tell you that one group that jumped on the bandwagon right away, and that's the uh, Salt Institute. Big surprise there. But before we even dig into the study itself, I love the absolute clarity of position taken by some of these other detractors, such as the Harvard School of Public Health, which called these findings, quote, most certainly wrong. Well, when you hear some of the details on the study methodology, you get a sense of where they're coming from. So here's how it all went down, okay? About 3,700 people who did not have cardiovascular disease were followed for about eight years. A 24-hour urine was collected at the beginning and end of the study, and sodium levels were measured. People with the lowest levels of sodium in their urine at the start of the study appeared to have a 56% higher risk of dying from cardiovascular disease than people with the highest sodium levels. And among the 2,000 or so patients with normal blood pressure at the start of the study, urinary sodium had no effect on the development of high blood pressure. So salt intake and hypertension did not connect here, Matt. Yeah, and here are some criticisms if you haven't already figured out about 5 or 10 just in that description. 24-hour urine collections, really? I mean, the detractors say that's not exactly a great monitor for eight years' worth of tracking. One day just doesn't reflect sodium intake patterns over time. And likewise, you can't use one day to predict health effects, say, 10 years from now, or eight in their case. Number two, the study did not account for other heart disease risk factors, or height, or weight, or even physical activity during the study period. And number three, there were only 84 deaths related to cardiovascular disease. Now, that's tough to draw sweeping conclusions from. And while over 50 of the 84 were in people with low urinary sodium at baseline, I mean, who knows what their sodium intake was years later or even what other risk factors they carried since that first measurement, right? Right, right. So the study's really that flawed. Why is there so much renewed debate going on now? Well, in part, it's because the door has been opened again to question whether a national reduction in salt consumption benefits everyone or just those with existing hypertension. And that's the crux of the debate, Matt. Does salt really cause hypertension? Does it cause hypertension? I mean, (laughs) the majority of experts right now listening would say there's 25 years worth of research validating that it does. Absolutely. But interestingly, if you hear from some who disagree, they'll tell you that this wealth of research, as they call it, we draw from, it isn't much better for judging long-term effects. Everything's short-term in those studies because there's just no way to salt-restrict diets 24-7 for years in the United States, not in this society. Have you ever tried a low-salt diet? 
I have tried some tasteless. low salt. Yeah, it doesn't last very long right. for anyone. And then, then there's the flip side argument we're hearing from some, like the lead author of this European study, which is that there may be some negative health effects of salt reduction in the long term, too. It's been put out there that cutting way back on sodium intake may activate regulatory mechanisms in the body to conserve it. And some of those are known to have cardiovascular effects. And don't forget, this study that was done, that was done in Belgium, it was done on Young white people. It's not really a broad study. You don't think that's representative? No. (laughs) From where I sit, that's totally representative. Well, we know what the Institute of Medicine's target goal is, and that's 1,500 milligrams a day. Here's a big question. I mean, do we think that's realistic or even appropriate? Well, you know, the comment was made in the article, like, do you salt restrict everybody just for the people who might have high blood pressure? And the comment was made, well, yeah, but you make everyone wear seatbelts, not just those people who are in car accidents. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's better or not better for I, I know I feel the difference if I eat too much sodium at my tender age of 62. I'll wake up in the morning and that wedding ring won't go on. No. Right. And is this a disease-treating thing or is this a preventative health measure? I mean, that's what we have to decide. If we're going to make the claim that salt leads to hypertension, hypertension leads to heart disease, or in fact, in some ways is heart disease, then we need to think critically about preventive health. But if we're not going to make that first step claim, then we're treating the symptomatic elements of hypertension or heart disease, and then it is only for those with hypertension. And this whole argument segueing back to our guest today. This is a first-world issue. I don't think people in the Sudan worry about salt. <laughs> the majority <laughs> of the salt is not here. So we're here arguing about this, and meanwhile, there's people that uh, have greater problems than this. But salt, I think, will be argued from time immemorial because, don't forget, there's that Salt Institute Mortons are very interested in us using all the salt that we can. Very active lobbying from the and, salt and, and try to get people to eat salt free. It just doesn't work, man. It's like no. trying to stop them from smoking. No. There's no longevity in that, which is why you can't build long-term studies with this. There's no way to do a randomized clinical control trial in a society where salt is the premium ingredient, number one ingredient in almost all the foods we eat. There's just no way. I mean, you dispute me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's any way. I love salt. <laughs> I love it. You've confirmed all of our all I love of our it. Thoughts. I love all kinds of salt. Sea salt, pink salt, black salt from Hawaii. All right. That wraps it up for today's edition of Second Opinion Live. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. You can download a podcast of the show and our entire archive at reachmd.com slash SOL. There are 50 to choose from. 50. 50 shows. So get to it. And this was the best. <laughs> Happy 50th, everybody. Our thanks, as always, to the Power Rangers in our control room. That's right, I called you Power Rangers. You guys are the best. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. I'll see you all next time for episode 51. Michael, looking You're, forward to it. Are you telling it. us they wear Power Ranger underwear in there? They're worth their weight in salt, is what they, they are. are. <laughs> see you next time, everybody. Everybody.